Good morning. Um, today we'll be doing two readings from Scripture. Our Old Testament reading is from Isaiah chapter 53, verses 1 through 6. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Our New Testament reading is from John chapter 12, verses 37 to 41. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe, because, as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. During uh, Lent each uh, Sunday, we'll be reciting the doxology together. So please rise and... Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. You may be seated. Lord, we praise you and thank you. Lord, we give you blessings and honor and praise and how good it is to gather in your name, to gather before your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would bless it, that you'd bless us as we uh, seek to understand your word. We're so grateful to you for all your goodness to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, I need that, don't I? So uh, in 1987, uh, I was actually arrested in East Berlin. 
my wife and my, my mother-in-law are watching from Namibia. It's true. I'm sorry. Hey, honey. And uh, I think my wife knew. I'm not sure. Um, my my mother-in-law is going, what's he talking about? <laughs> what's, what's he on about? That's what they would say. What is he on about? Um, you know, I, I, I'm probably at the, my age is right where the cutoff line really is of people who are raised under the Cold War. You know, I think, you know, I mean, people might have been born during the Cold War, but I was like raised during it. That's your way of kind of looking at the world. You know, you see the Iron Curtain, the US, you know, USSR over there, and this is how the world is divided. And you couldn't actually, growing up in it, it was just reality. You know, and it was, you couldn't imagine it any other way. And uh, when I went over there after college to, to um, you know, I went to Europe after college, I wanted to go behind the Iron Curtain, you know? So I wanted to go to some of these countries over there. So the first place I went to is East Berlin, which was, you know, um, in the middle of East Germany. And then you remember West Berlin was this incredible, you know, incredibly vibrant city. And then there's the Berlin Wall. And, you know, just, I mean, it was crazy. You know, the wall is so, so intimidating and a wild scene. And you had to, you know, you could go through the border, through the wall and go into East Berlin. And they even made you like, you know, you had to like exchange money, exchange your 20 West German marks for 20 East German marks as if they were of the same value. The second you get in, people will give you 10 to one, you know, on the black market there. But, um, yeah, and, uh, and why they get arrested? Well, they tried to keep you in, a, in one particular street, right, which looked like West Berlin, kind of. That looked like it was prosperous and nice. And you weren't allowed to go off that. But I wanted to see what East Berlin really like, so I scooted off and got to see the rest. And it was like, I mean, it looked so war-torn. I mean, still all the walls pockmarked from World War II, you know, with all the, you know, artillery and such. It was just, you know... Um, it was, I mean, really just like, I can't believe it's still like this, you know, 40 years after World War II. And, uh, and then I see a couple, you know, military people coming towards me, and I realized they actually were coming from four different directions simultaneously, <laughs> and descended on me like that. And, uh, and uh, so I left East Berlin. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know. And uh, anyway, fun story. Uh, what's the point? Uh, the point is, you know, I couldn't, you know, I, I couldn't imagine at that point anything changing. You know, the wall, this is, this is reality as it was known. And most people felt that way. Most people couldn't imagine any other world, you know. And, and uh, even though it had been just 40 years since World War II, but you couldn't imagine life being any different. But there was a person then who famous, if you're uh, alive at that time, who saw the world very differently and saw a potential for that thing coming down. Ronald Reagan, that very year, had stood in that spot before the Berlin Wall and said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And it was, and I don't think, now we don't find it as radical as it was because we know the history. Uh, he was right, you know, the wall came down there. It's, this is the history we grew, most of people here young, you grew up in. But at that time, that was just like, and it wasn't just a right or a left thing. Everyone thought he was nuts. Everyone thought, you can't be serious. And the kind of language he used, like look, at this, this is some of the speech he gave. Um, he says, and this gets to the root of the matter, the most fundamental distinction of all between East and West. The totalitarian world produces backwardness because it does such violence to the spirit, thwarting the human impulse to create, to enjoy, to worship. 
The totalitarian world finds even symbols of love and of worship and affront. Years ago, before the East Germans began rebuilding their churches, they erected a secular structure, the television tower in Alexanderplatz. Virtually ever since, the authorities have been working to correct what they view as the tower's one major flaw, treating the glass sphere at the top with paints and chemicals of every kind. Yet even today, when the sun strikes that sphere, that sphere that towers over all Berlin, the light makes the sign of the cross. There in Berlin, like the city itself, symbols of love, symbols of worship cannot be suppressed. Ronald Reagan. It's a pretty powerful speech standing right there in front of the Berlin Wall. You know, and, and, it, and you're thinking, and, and again, this is at a time when almost no one saw the world like this. He saw what seemed to him utterly obvious, this has to go, this is wrong, this is evil, and it's gonna collapse. And he goes, I'm gonna work towards that, I'm thinking, you know, I'm moving forward with that in my mind. While everyone else was like, what? Now, I, I say that not to talk about this, but it's an, it's an amazing example that there are, there are many times when pe some people can believe something and it can be so clear and so obvious to them, while to others, they just don't see it at all. The reason I bring that up is that's actually what the gospel's like. Today, we're in the third week of the series on Isaiah chapter 53. You know, the gospel according to Isaiah 53. And, uh, and we're talking about what I think is, you know, arguably or should be, you know, the, the most magnificent, most remarkable prophecy in all of the Old Testament. As it goes into such incredible detail, you know, ultimately of, of, of Jesus, of what, and, and the way Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is all right there, and his purposes of his coming are all right there in this, chat, in this enormous passage in the Old Testament. It really is a large passage in such detail. And uh, we're showing not just how Jesus fulfills it, but even how it was in the minds of the New Testament writers that are even shaping their understanding of Jesus' life in light of what they read in Isaiah 53. And we've talked, the first week we talked about how just the, the narrative of the suffering servant you see there in Isaiah 53, you know, how uh, his, 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 um, his unjust suffering, his laying down his life and his rising from the dead, you know, and you see all that incredible narrative and you see it right there uh, in Isaiah 53. Last week we talked about more the reasons for it and the idea of atonement, that he died, you know, for our sins, to cover over our sins. And uh, how that, you know, all that theology of the New Testament of the gospel is right there in Isaiah 53. Today, we're going to talk about this idea of the mystery of faith. This idea that some believe and some don't. And uh, I'd, I'd like to say we'll talk about why that is, but I, I don't think we will. You know, to an extent, because I think it's part of this mystery. I think we'll talk about the mystery, but we're not going to solve the mystery. And if we get to the end of this and you think we've solved the mystery, then I've misspoken or you've misunderstood because <laughs> I, I make no such attempt to do so. But we want to examine it and I want you to take hold of it. Um, so we're going to talk initially, and, and just so you understand, when, and the, the New Testament writers talk about this mystery in part, and when they do, at least Paul, John and Paul in different places say, it's like in Isaiah 53, the mystery of faith. Like for instance, if you're thinking, in uh, John 12, it says, even as, 
you know, as you read, even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe him. Because this was fulfilled the word of Isaiah the prophet who said, Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And Paul, in a very similar strain, said, not all the Israelites accepted the good news, because Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed our message? So they're saying people aren't believing, it's just like Isaiah 53. So we'll start off by asking, what does Isaiah 53 say about this question? And then um, what is it, you know, and, and how does the New Testament writers pull that on and why does that, how does that mystery exist? That mystery of faith, how some believe and some don't. And then we'll talk about how, uh, how can we better understand it? How can we think about it? Because it's actually somewhat disturbing. How do, we, how do we wrap our minds around and begin to grasp it? So Isaiah 53 and the mystery, the New Testament as it plays out, and ultimately how to think about it, the mystery of faith. So we know Isaiah 53, and we read, you know, it's this incredible narrative of, you know, the suffering servant laying down his life to bear the sins of the world, you know, an amazing story. But at the start of it, it has this really bizarre phrase. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It's a very strange thing. It's like there's this enormous, this is this incredible message and this report we're going to give, but who's believed it? The arm of the Lord is active, but who's, who's seen it? Who's understood it? It's a very strange statement. And the real key thing you want to look at that's so shocking is this phrase, the arm of the Lord. It's never anywhere in the Old Testament um, phrased like this. Like the arm of the Lord, who's, to whom it's been revealed, meaning who's seen it. Because one thing about the arm of the Lord is everyone sees it. That's the idea. The arm, you remember, the, body, the, the scripture uses a lot of Hebrew body parts, and they mean things, right? The arm is often is talking about, like, for instance, um, you know, the wicked. It says the power of the wicked will be broken. That's the word literally, the arm. It's the, the arm is activity. It's action. It's power. It's the way he's working, Right? And here when it says the power, the arm of the Lord, that's when the God reaches into history and does something, reveals himself when he acts. You, know, you think of the eyes of the Lord when he sees stuff, but the arm of the Lord is when he acts. And most famously, and where you see it all over the place in the Old Testament, you see it in Exodus and De Deuteronomy, talking about the redemption of the land of Egypt. You know, when God redeemed Israel uh, out, of, out of Egypt through, you know, great signs and wonders and the parting of the Red Sea and the miracles and the plagues, you know, it says, so the Lord brought us out of, out of Egypt with a mighty hand and outstretched arm, with great terror, with signs and wonders. God acted, right, and took them out of Egypt. And then as you come up to Isaiah 53, um, he's using this arm of the Lord language again. And what's so key about this is you need to understand the whole new covenant picture and the whole New Testament gospel is a replay of the redemption out of the land of Egypt, right? In the same way God, you know, redeemed us out of bondage and slavery to Pharaoh, so he redeems us out of bondage and slavery to sin. You know, as he, you know, he, he redeemed us and he made a covenant with Israel out of that thing. He made a covenant with us, you know, through the Passover lamb, you know, and the lamb of God slain. And as, you know, after that covenant, as they wandered in the, in the wilderness, so we wander here until he takes us into the promised land. And the whole thing's a, a play out, right? So the arm of the Lord's acting in both places. And right when you come up to Isaiah 53, remember it's the, it starts in 52, particularly 12 to 14 we've talked about right before the chapter, but just two verses earlier it says this, the Lord will lay bare his holy arm 
in the sight of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Right? So he's going to bear his arm, meaning God is going to reach down and act, not just for Israel, but for all the nations. The salvation reaches the ends of the earth. God will do this amazing action. And then you come and it says, who has believed this message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? But so, so hold on, people haven't seen or they don't know about it? God's holy arm bared so that all could see, yet here it says, and this is a passive, right? I don't want to get too technical with verbiage and all this kind of stuff. What a passive means is something you're acted upon, like in the Hebrew, right? So to be revealed is you're acted upon. So it says, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Like we're passive and it has to be revealed to us. And even the, that's a causative in the believed, meaning it's, it's, it's uh, I don't want to get too technical, but it's kind of interesting. It's, it's basically who can believe technically what we have heard, if you want to pull out the words. That's really what it means. Who can believe? So I don't have the opportunity. I can't believe it. It hasn't been revealed to me. So the arm of the Lord has acted, bared his only arm in history to do this thing but people don't have the ability to believe it? That's very mysterious and disturbing, isn't it? And now when New Testament writers pick up this idea, right? You see this kind of same idea, and I don't know if they're picking up, like just to remind you in, in uh, when Romans, when, when Paul talks about this mystery of faith, he says, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters so that you may be con not be conceited. Speaking to Gentiles who become believers, asking, why is Israel rejecting? He said, I don't want you to be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And hardening, that, what, what's that a reference to? We're in the Exodus again, right? Hardening of heart to Pharaoh. You know, that's, 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 he's using that same kind of Exodus language. And he's saying there's Israel itself, there's a hardening of their hearts, which sounds to be like a, like a sovereign act of God. You're like, and it's in part, you're like, what is going on there? Right? So they, 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 and God's working out his plan through their lack of, you know, to use the language from Isaiah 53 that hasn't been revealed to them. Now, here's one of the problems, but what does Paul's ministry look like all the time? Does it look like somebody who goes, ah, you know, Israel's not going to believe? What does he do? Where's the first place he goes in every single city in the book of Acts? Anybody? Synagogue. Synagogue. Every city. First thing he does is he goes right to the people of Israel, tells them about the Messiah, tells them about the gospel, preaches to the Jewish people, and then says, oh, why won't they believe? Well, hold on. I thought, what's going on? Which, which is it? And, 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 he, and he complains in the same book, earlier chapter, he goes, ah, oh, man, if they would just believe and see it. And you know what the problem is? He doesn't say the problem there is they can't believe. He says the problem is they've made a righteousness of their own through their law. Right? And you're like, well, hold on, is it? What's the problem? Is it that God's not revealed it to them? Or is it that, you know, they're establishing a righteousness of their own if they would just and, and the entire book of romans is a giant argument as to why it's always been by faith from beginning to end abraham moses and it goes you know so he's arguing to his own people yet at the same time he's saying there's this mystery to their lack of belief in fact he's jewish himself right he's he's part of israel and all the right all the new testament writers except maybe luke 
you know, were, were Jewish. I always think at least Luke was a doctor, which isn't bad. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's all right. Um, I'm sorry, focus. Um, so you have this mystery, right? And it's not just Paul's mystery, right? Um, this is also expressed by the other writers as well. Like, look at John, what we just read earlier, right? Um, you know, he says, even after Jesus performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This will fulfill the word of the, you know, Isaiah the prophet. And then he goes into the, you know, Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And then he quotes from Isaiah um, 6. When he's the call of Isaiah to speak to Israel, it says, for this reason they could not believe. Oh, this is good to know. Why? Because as Isaiah said elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Right? So that seems clear. God somehow has blinded them or hardened them. But then what does it say in the very next statement? Yet, at the same time, many among the leaders did believe in him. Wait, wait, hold on. I thought you couldn't. But you can? Oh, but because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. For what's the reason? They loved human praise rather than praise from God. Wait, hold on. I thought it was that their, their hearts were hard and they couldn't believe. No, but now they, they can believe and some do believe, but it's actually the big problem is fear of man, not fear of God. You see some of the problems here? You're like, wow, which is it? You know, and, and, it gets, and, and John gets even more, because the whole context of John, right, what's he doing? He's proclaiming the gospel everywhere, right? Jesus is running around, they're inviting people to believe. He's saying, come and believe, receive. To all who received, you know, he gave the right to become children of God. But then at the same time, he says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. No one who comes to me, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I'll raise him up at the last day. Holy smokes, huh? It's just pretty confusing stuff, right? Now, you know, which is it? You know, is it God reveals and God shows it and God opens up this and draws the people? Or is it that we are all called to believe? And there's, there's the weird mystery of the gospel, right? It, the Bible's described like this, you know, there's like a giant banner like this where it says, you know, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And it's inviting everybody. And then as soon as you walk underneath the thing, you turn around and look at the other side and it says, chosen in him from the foundations of the world. You're like, wait, hold on, wait, wait, wait. You know, right? wasn't everyone, you know, and that's part of the mystery of the gospel, trying to figure that out. How are those two things true? And lest we think we can fill, fill, figure it out, for those who are theologically aware, this has been the major divide of the Protestant church for the last 400 years. This very question, and it remains theological debate today. You know, this is Calvinists and Arminians, you know, trying to figure this thing out. But what you need to understand, too, is it's not merely a theological question. It's because how we understand this and the fear of both sides, if we understand it wrong, is it greatly impacts how you walk with God, how you think about his character, his nature, how you think about him. Because like, if you're on the side thinking God is just choosing some and not choosing others, what do you think about God? And what do you think about the very, pre is the preaching even honest when he's saying everyone come and you can't even come? I think, well, what is that, you know, how does that even make sense? And, and what does it say about God? God's like, no, no, you're, nope, 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 you I like, you I like, you I like. It's like, that doesn't make sense as to what God's like. And it seems inconsistent, right, with the, the rest of the scriptures. You know, God who wants all to come to repentance, who desires that none would perish. Like, how's this possible? How's this working out? 
Now, if you're on the other side, and you're looking at people going, um, who say, I, just, I chose to follow him. What's the fruit of choosing to follow him? Probably pride. <laughs> you know, and judgmental towards other. Where's, where's grace in that? Where's the gift of God, you know, in the sense that, you know, he just did this thing to me. I had no choice to do anything. And so that's the real problem is that grace, you know, gets diminished and the gift of God and the, the miracle that's in your heart that I'm unworthy doesn't happen. So you see some, both these things are happening. Some of these result in somebody, that, you know, God is just and God is right. You know, just an amazing thing happened last Thursday, just to give a think of, of how grace transforms you. Um, and it, again, for me, it's always this amazing thing that what I'm preaching on happens in my life that week. But I'm sitting there on Thursday and I'm at the... Uh, I've told you guys, you know, I go to the substance abuse unit at St. Elizabeth's and I do a spirituality group uh, every week. And, uh, you know, people are all over the place. And one guy who was there last week, you know, and he could, I don't know if he could, I don't want to characterize it, but, you know, he's like a 60-year-old, you know, classic kind of Boston Irish Catholic guy, you know. He goes, yeah, yeah, you know, I go to church, you know, like Easter and Christmas. Yeah, God, I don't know, you know, all the spirituality stuff. But, he's, you know, he's, he's nice, but he's just like this stuff, when you talk about God and prayer and all that stuff, I got no idea what you're talking about. And then I come this week on Thursday, and he's kind of quiet for a while. And I finally ask him, you know, Rick, you know, how, how are you thinking about this after a week? And he goes, you're not going to believe this. I've been, like, praying all day, every day. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, morning, noon, and night, like, all the time I'm praying. I'm like, well, wow, that's great, Rick. Uh, what happened? <laughs> you, know, what are you, you know, why are you doing this now? And he goes, you're not going to believe this. I'll go, <laughs> try me, you know. I've, I've cultivated an ability to believe anything. And, uh, and he goes, when I was in this, it happened right here last week. I was in this group, and at the end of the group, I just have a time of quiet. You know, we kind of do like a hands up, hands down. If you want to meditate, that's fine, but you want to pray. And I just kind of have just time of quiet. And he goes, I was sitting there in the quiet, and suddenly I felt like something just hit me. And I don't know, I just, I felt like, I just like felt it all over myself. I couldn't even understand what was going on. I'd heard of people and, you know, other people in these recovery groups talk about having an awakening, you know. And he goes, like, I don't know what the heck that was. And I think it happened to me. So I've been telling people, I told my wife and my friends, like, oh, I think I met God this week. And they all look at me like I'm crazy. I don't think I'm going to say that anymore. <laughs> you know, it's just this, you know, and he's like, and he's just going, I go, it's not crazy. But, and, and what, what he felt was incredible grace. He felt there was no pride from that. He was overwhelmed at the goodness. And, and that's what gives him the strength, right? The sense that, gosh, this love of God that's a gift that nothing I could earn or nothing I can get, nothing I can grab. And you see that, that somehow while we understand this thing, we understand it. And yet, what does he still need to do? He still needs to choose to follow him. You know, that this morning will be another choice for him. And it remains a choice, you know, every moment of every day. You know, so somehow neither is excluded, right? Neither the grace and God and the gift and we can't earn anything, nor our responsibility to choose to follow. They both exist together. You know, when I think about how you solve these issues, you know, these, and again, we're not going to solve what the, the church has debated over 400 years. But I tend to think when you see these hard issues, you hold on to those things which you know to be true. The revealed truths. What's the revealed truth? God is just. God does what's right. You don't have to worry about God not doing what's right with people. 
<laughs> yeah, that, that does not need to be concerned. And the fact that you would understand totally how God works also is false. It's not true. <laughs> we, don't under, we can't conceive all the mystery of how God works, but God will do what's right. We know that God loves us. We know that God has made us to be in fellowship with him, and, we know, and he knows that. And he longs for people to turn to him, longs for people to walk in the world as he made it to walk, to understand his blessings, to delight, and to rejoice in that. We know those things to be true. We know that God desires all would repent. But we also know that nobody can make God do anything. No one can force God's hand. No one can reach up to the heavens and grab God down. You know, he reaches to us and holds us. You know, it's, as it says in Corinthians, it's God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light to shine in our hearts, to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. It's overwhelming, it's amazing grace that any of us believe or think about it. Sometimes, and so many times in my prayer, I sit there and I go, Lord, I don't know why I believe. I don't know how you've won my heart, Lord. But thank you. Thank you that somehow the arm of the Lord's been revealed and I don't understand. And I know also in truth that he calls me to call on all people. And I know God, he loves them and desires they would know and understand how the mystery's worked out. I don't, I don't know. But I can tell you one effect I've seen of the mystery. I've seen that there's something about that blocking, that mystery thing that has a lot of effect. You know, like God allows those to reject in the legitimacy of not being forced to believe. And those who do believe, there's an almost intentional difficulty that forces you to seek after it, right? You know, I have a friend, um, a Jewish guy who believed in, he's believed in Jesus. That amazing thing happened like 25 years ago. And his entire family has not had the slightest interest for all these years. Finally, after 25, might be 30 years, his older brother is reading the New Testament for the first time this year. And uh, one thing, it's, it's kind of one of these weird ironies that the most widely read, most wide, perhaps the most influential, but certainly the most widely distributed, widely translated book in the history of the world, it, by far, is the New Testament. A piece of Jewish literature which almost, or very few Jewish people read, much less believe. That's pretty ironic. But if you're a legal person, you also realize, hey, that's pretty, that's amazing evidence, because the most you know, important piece of evidence for the veracity of the New Testament is the Old Testament, a book which is kept and maintained by people who have a vested interest in the New Testament not being true. You know, think about it. They, they maintain Isaiah 53, which is perhaps the most remarkable evidence written five to 700 years before Jesus you know, lived. And it's maintained, it was in the Dead Sea Scrolls, it's maintained by people who don't believe its fulfillment. You know, as opposed to being fashioned to show prophecy. And you could say, well, New Testament's fashioning, but that's one reason why they also they place everything in history, if that makes sense, lynching all the history people. But I don't want to go, I, um, I dive, what do you call it? I digress. <laughs> For as often as I do that, I should know the word. Um, at, uh, but yet he says, I get so frustrated when I read um, the New Testament because of the parables. Why doesn't he just tell me what he's thinking about? Why not just make it obvious? Why, you, why all the mystery? Why all the, the struggle with this if you want me to get it? You know, and there's part of this idea where it forces you to seek and desire and to want it. 
And that's what seems to be the thing again and again that God wants us to search for us with all his heart because what you search for, what you hunger for, what you strive for is that what you value. And the Lord is, he, I am the pearl of great price. And the problem is that we don't value that. If something's easy, if something's just handed to you, you never value it or treasure it. You know, I remember years ago, um, you know, the young, young you know, boy in foster care whatever, was with, with us for, you know, four or five months. And, and I remember um, giving him one time, I, it was this precious coin. You know, it was, a, you know, we, I had a you know, Morgan silver dollar in beautiful condition from like 1880. 150-year-old pure silver coin that was my, my, my father's aunt had gotten and given to my father who gave it to me and I was, you know, give to my kids. And I thought, and it's his birthday. And I go, you know, I look at this thing at 1880, and I think, gosh, it's even in one of the mints of the West. You know, yeah, I, I think in the time of that, what an amazing thing that this coin comes out there, and it's used in that time, right? So I, you know, I give him this coin. I think he probably lost it within a half hour. And it was gone. Thought nothing of it. And, you know, and not that the coin's anything, but the idea that, you know, someone to find something precious. You know, God revealed himself to that Rick right at the moment when Rick desperately needed it. How did we know the moment? How did we understand it? How did God grasp that? But he received it as grace. And I don't know how God deals with other people. I don't know what's going on. We keep humble about it because we have no clue. We have no room to judge anyone. It's all of us are by grace. We know where to share and to tell. But more importantly is how for each one of us. We're told, seek and you shall find. Knock and the door will be opened. You know, search for me with all your heart, and I will be found by you, declares the Lord. So we know for us, you know, we, we sit there and we think, Lord, I don't know. Let it, let it melt us. Let us, the amazement of us understanding the revelation of the arm of the Lord change our lives. And let us follow him with all of our hearts. Amen? Lord, we uh, want to give you praise and thanks for your abundant goodness to us. And Lord, we get lost in the mystery, Lord how you both call us to follow you with all of our hearts, with the decisions and our, with our will bent to you. Yet at the same time, Lord, we don't understand how you chose us and revealed yourself to us, and we are so grateful, Lord. And we long for, I think, of our family and friends and neighbors. And Lord, they would have what happened to Rick and what's happened to me and so many, Lord, to know your abundant goodness. Give them hearts that seek to honor you. We praise you and thank you, Lord, and we stand amazed in the presence. In Jesus' name we pray.